Reflections on Herman Melville's Billy Budd by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 We're going to start Billy Budd this morning. Before we get into the text, there are two things. There is the uh, title page and the preface. Billy Budd for Topman, what befell him in the year of the Great Mutiny, dedicated to Jack Chase, Englishman, wherever that great heart may now be on earth or harbored in paradise, captain of the main top in the year 1843 in the U.S. frigate United States. It could be argued that one of the main characters in Shakespeare's Hamlet is the ghost of Hamlet's father, though he makes only brief appearances in the play. It's the specter or the spirit of Hamlet's father that haunts the play and that and that uh, is the source of its motivations. In a comparable way, I'd like for us to begin our reflections on Billy Budd by noting that a very prominent feature in the motivational structure of this story is another kind of a specter, another kind of a ghost that is haunting everyone in this story and haunting the culture uh, that they share. And that is, in the first instance, the specter or the ghost of what's called the Great Mutiny. Uh, the mutiny at Knorr that took place in 1797 in, uh, in, in the British fleet. And uh, the month before that, a smaller but uh, parallel mutiny took place at Spithead. And these mutinies would have been alarming enough on their own, but what made them truly significant for those who were witnessing them is that they were coming in the aftermath of the French Revolution. And this story says that there is an inordinate preoccupation on the part of the British with the possibility that the French Revolution will spread. And over and over and over again, Melville calls attention, every time he gets an opportunity, he calls attention to that fact. So that the story, we can't understand the story without understanding the crisis atmosphere in which it's taking place. And, and that is that the French Revolution has, has sent shockwaves uh, throughout Europe. And the British uh, are suddenly uh, fixed on that event and in great anxiety that might be spreading. And then these two mutinies occur. So that in his title page, uh, Melville refers, makes it known. To, un to understand the story, you must understand the year in which it took place. It took place in the year of the Great Mutiny, which is, which is a little bit like saying something took place in the McCarthy era. You see, you have, it's a way of reminding us of the atmospherics of the time. And then the text is dedicated to one Jack Chase, who is an Englishman. So we have an English captain of a 
United States frigate entitled the United States. I think there is here a hint that what spreads from France to England will spread from England to the United States. So th there's a little hint here that, that the ghost that is haunting this story is haunting Western civilization. And the preface as much as says so. Here's the way it goes. The year 1797, the year of this narrative, belongs to a period which, as every thinker now feels, involved a crisis for Christendom, not exceeded in its undetermined momentousness at the time by any other era whereof there is record. A crisis of Christendom. The opening proposition made by the spirit of that age I want to break here because uh, Melville uh, penned one version of the sentence and then he struck out a phrase and rewrote it. And we happen to have the original. So when he first wrote this sentence, uh, he kind of got off track a little bit. He said this, The opening proposition made by the spirit of that age was one hailed by the noblest men of it. Even the dry timber of Wordsworth took fire. <laughs> On second draft, he decided to omit that uh, remark. And so it reads this way. The opening proposition made by the spirit of that age involved rectification of the old world's hereditary wrong. Uppercase capitalizing old world's hereditary wrongs. Now that can be taken in two senses. In the sense that it was a revolt against hereditary monarchies but also in the sense that the Enlightenment spirit that animated that time was one which assumed, uh, without necessarily saying so, that um, original, what we call original sin uh, was, uh, was no longer operative. That uh, with reason and uh, efforts and uh, progressive thought and so on and so forth, that a, a a better world could be made, and that a lot of that hocus pocus about our about our inherent uh, uh, proclivity for for sin and error uh, needed to be simply ruled out. So, uh, the opening proposition made by the spirit of that age involved rectification of the old world's hereditary wrong. In France, to some extent, this was bloodily effected. But what then? Straightway, the revolution itself became a wrongdoer. One more oppressive than the king. Namely, they rolled out the guillotine. Under Napoleon, it enthroned upstart kings and initiated that prolonged agony of continual war whose final throw was Waterloo. During those years, not the wisest could have foreseen that the outcome of all would be what, to some thinkers apparently, it has since turned out to be, a political advance along nearly the whole line for Europeans. So there's an interesting paradox. There's a crisis uh, that is responded to in the revolution. Uh, the revolution turns out to be a bloody one involving the guillotine. And then, because of some strange turn of events, it's regarded in retrospect as having been a, at least politically, a beneficial episode.
It's a curious pattern. In the next paragraph of the preface, the pattern is repeated in British terms. Now, as elsewhere hinted, it was something caught from the revolutionary spirit that at Spithead, that's the first small uh, mutiny, something caught from rev the revolutionary spirit that at Spithead emboldened the men of war's men to rise against real abuses, long-standing ones. And afterwards at Nor, to make inordinate and aggressive demands. Successful resistance to which was confirmed only when the ringleaders were hung for an admonitory spectacle to the anchored fleet. That is to say, uh, if the French Revolution, uh, if the crisis uh, led to the guillotine there, the crisis here led to the yardarm and the public hanging. And as the crisis there in some crazy way, uh, in retrospect, led to political advance, so here. Yet in a way analogous to the operation of the revolution at large, the great mutiny, though by Englishmen naturally deemed monstrous at the time, doubtless gave the first latent prompting to most important reforms in the British Navy. So you can see in those two paragraphs an absolute parallel in, with France and England. Chaos, a, uh, a, the, the crisis focused at a point when uh, the guillotine in France or the yard arm in, in the British Navy is employed. And then as time goes on, one looks back on it and finds out that it was a beneficial episode, which leads me to what I wanted to explore a little bit before we go further, and that is this whole hermeneutic or interpretive tool we're using right now, which is René Girard's work on uh, cultural anthropology and the, and the place of the biblical tradition and specifically the gospel tradition in understanding uh, ourselves and the kind of delusions that tend to take hold of us. Girard gives us a tool. A, a hoe is a tool uh, for weeding the garden. You can't, it's not the same thing as carrots. Carrots you can eat. Carrots represent the thing. Uh, but the tool is the tool. So we must never confuse the tool with the thing itself. And what I'd like to do is take a little minute to try to uh, distinguish them and then come back and, and affirm the value of the tool. Perhaps a brief way of saying how I regard the Jesus uh, phenomenon, the life of Jesus and its aftermath in the Gospels and in the Christian movement, is that we have a living expression of what it means uh, to live at one with God. And that's what the scriptures are driving at, to show us a way of living at one with God. And in the course of doing that, to uh, provide us with those experiences which will confirm in us the realization that love is stronger than death. Now that's my shorthand version of what the scriptures are about. In Buddhism, there are three fires, and they are wanting, hating, and delusion. And Jesus and the Gospels have to deal with those same three fires because we are not going to discover our God-centeredness if we are constantly being caught up in the conflagration of these three fires, wanting, hating, and delusion. 
the record of Jesus' life in the Gospels and in the New Testament and in the tradition of the Christian movement, as we have it, provides us with an insight into the workings of those three fires and helps us to disabuse ourselves of the little hooks that uh, pull us into those three fires. And it's here that I think Girard's interpretive tool is very helpful. It teaches us something about how those three things work, how they are related, how wanting is related to hating, and how the two of them are related to some larger delusional uh, thing that will take over and completely eclipse in us the longing for God-centeredness. So when you hear me going on and on about the, and using these uh, Girardian, uh, this Girardian lingo, don't think that I have uh, fallen into... Uh, into a trance or something. I, I, I've always uh, remembered what Jung said about I'm, I'm happy I'm Jung and not a Jungian. And uh, I, I feel the same way about Girard and his work. But I do think, as with Jung's work, we're provided with tools that can be of real benefit to us. And I think Girard's tools are uniquely beneficial to those who would try to understand the anthropological and, and therefore the spiritual significance of the scriptures. So what Girard would help us to see is that the wanting leads to the hating and the hating leads to a, a kind of random, chaotic crisis in which everybody is deluded. And his terms for that are mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, and then this, this social convulsion called the, I call the mimetic vortex, he calls the crisis of distinction where everything is wiped, all the distinctions are wiped away. And there's a kind of random and undirected uh, aggression and, and uh, suspicion and so on and so forth. And all of that, uh, the, the reciprocal violence of that crisis is solved, Girard claimed, when it is polarized in a situation where there is unanimity minus one, the one could be one person or one subgroup who is seen to be the carrier of the plague and uh, their expulsion or victimization or execution is provides the ritual wherewithal to reconvene the culture. Now, we've talked about this many times, but I feel a need, and I, I hope you do, of, of, to go back over it uh, from time to time. What Melville's text says is that this story is happening in exactly one of those kind of crises and that we have to understand it in light of that. And he also says that this crisis is the chief crisis of Christendom. If so, it's the crisis of Christendom in which we're still living. Melville points to the first uh, prominent eruption of this crisis in the modern world, that is the French Revolution but that it is ongoing. And in a way, it's the crisis of religion, or another way of saying it's the crisis of the human spirit. I, I, I say it's another way of saying it, because when we did Melville's Moby Dick, 
the subtitle of that little small series was The Crisis of the Human Spirit. So that's enough on that. I wanted to reflect for a minute on the use of the tool and not to confuse the tool with, with the thing itself. The value of the tool is that it allows us to, to weed out uh, that which will keep the plant from growing. But it's not the thing itself. In the time before steamships, or then more frequently than now, a group of bronze sailors could be seen walking in certain instances. They would flank or, like a bodyguard, quite surround some superior figure of their own class, moving along with them like Aldebaran among the lesser lights of his constellation. Aldebaran's a prominent star. That signal object was the handsome sailor, capitalized, quotation marks, the handsome sailor of the less prosaic time alike of the military and merchant navy. With no perceptible trace of the vainglorious about him, rather with the offhand unaffectedness of natural regality, he seemed to accept the spontaneous homage of his shipmates. So we, we, we need to stop and think about this handsome sailor. Because it's not just Billy Bud, it's a, it's a genre, it's a type. It's someone who fills a social niche. And Billy Bud will be a, a somewhat unique version, but he will still be a member of this genre. And in the first introduction of The Handsome Sailor, the only uh, metaphorical reference we have is Aldebaran, the star. And he describes this handsome sailor as being uh, surrounded by his this coterie of admirers. And I'll go on with that uh, reference in a minute. But the interesting thing is that Aldebaran is a, comes from an uh, uh, Arabic word, which means the follower. So already, at least etymologically, there is at least a, a, a question raised about um, what is the cart and what's the horse in terms of this little social phenomenon, in the center of which is the handsome sailor. But before we go any further, Melville stops and, and has another digression, which is, a, in a sense, a parallel, but a, a parallel in which he takes an opportunity to explore uh, by subtle innuendo aspects of this handsome sailor, which he will uh, unfold as the story goes on. He says... A somewhat remarkable instance of this same phenomenon of, the, of handsome sailor recurs to me, and it's something that he observed in Liverpool. I saw a common sailor so intensely black that he must needs have been a native African of the unadulterate blood of Ham, a symmetric figure much above the average in height, the two ends of a gay silk handkerchief thrown loose about the neck danced upon the displayed ebony of his chest. In his ears were big hoops of gold, and a highland bonnet with a tartan band set off his shapely head. Magnificent figure, right? It was a hot noon in July, and his face, lustrous with perspiration, beamed with barbaric good humor. In jovial sallies right and left, his white teeth flashing into view, he rollicked along the center of a company of his shipmates. So this is a parade of a man. This is a, this is a, someone who, and parade is 
is an appropriate term here, you see. This is a man on parade. This is a procession in which those who are processing may be participating semi-consciously of its processional features, but to some extent conscious of it. But in retrospect, we can feel it. Certainly Melville puts us in touch with the processional aspect. And we think, what a marvelous thing this procession is. And then he says, these were made up, these shipmates, these were made up of such an assortment of tribes and complexions as would have well fitted them to be marched up by Anacarsis cloats before the bar of the first French assembly as representatives of the human race. I'll come back to these references in a minute. At each spontaneous tribute rendered by the wayfarers to this black pagod of a idol, to this black pagod of a fellow, the tribute of a pause and stare, or less frequently an exclamation, the motley retinue showed that they took that sort of pride in the evoker of it, which the Assyrian priest doubtless showed for their grand sculptured bull when the faithful prostrated themselves. So here in one short paragraph, we have some very interesting allusions regarding the handsome sailor, which Melville will not uh, make once we get down to the business of Billy Budd, but we need to take note of it. This is not the first time this has happened. This is a phenomenon that happens. Uh, we're going to see it happen under uh, a somewhat uh, extraordinary circumstances, that is to say, at a moment of cultural crisis. And so we will see features of it. Features of it will surface which we might not have seen otherwise. But the skillful eye of Melville has seen subliminally these features already. So we have three references. Ham, Anacarsis Clotes, and the Assyrian priest. So I want to follow, those, follow up on those three. Noah, a tiller of the soil, was the first to plant the vine. He drank some of the wine, and while he was drunk, he uncovered himself inside his tent. There may be some, in the original, there may be some euphemism here for uh, some uh, sexual indiscretion. But that doesn't, doesn't come into our story. Ham, Canaan's ancestor, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Noah had three sons. Shem and Jephthah took a cloak and they both put it over their shoulders and walking backwards covered their father's nakedness. They kept their faces turned away and did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his stupor, he learned what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Accursed be Canaan. He shall be his brother's meanest slave. So Ham is the younger brother. And in mythology, it's usually the younger brother who is... Uh, less contained by the cultural mythos and therefore the more imaginative when it comes to solving the riddle. You know, it's usually the first two try it and then the third one gets it, right? Uh, Ham sees something revealing about his father and he allows himself 
to receive that piece of information. He comes to know something that everybody else is trying to cover up. And he's banished for that. He has, he has shown uh, less delicate regard for what needs to be kept covered, kept secret, which has to do with drunkenness and, and that which comes from drunkenness. Okay? This is not a particularly orthodox interpretation of this text, you understand. And I have no idea what Melville would do with this same text. But I think it, it, it helps us. Ham is the one who in some way is responsible for revealing a truth which others are obliged to cover up and not come to know. See, turn the other way and not know that about the ancestors. And then the next one is Anacarsis Klotz. Anacarsis Klotz was a German-born lesser noble who was completely taken by the themes of the French Revolution, came to France, joined in the, in the fervor of, uh, of, the, of the cause, and headed a delegation of 36 foreigners who described themselves as the embassy of the human race, and as their leader, he addressed the French assembly. And he said to the French assembly, this is not just your revolution. This is a revolution that belongs properly to the, to the whole of Europe. And so it is incumbent upon those who are carrying forth the French Revolution to cross those boundaries, those now artificial boundaries, and to liberate, his word, liberate all of Europe with this spirit of freedom. Because there are no more boundaries. We are all in this together. There, there is, you see, it's, it's a parody of the gospel. Paul says there's neither Greek nor Jew, neither male nor female. Well, Anacarsis quotes says there is there is neither German nor French nor Italian. Nor, it's all, you see, now we must spread this revolutionary fervor. He was later accused by Robespierre of being a foreign agent and guillotine. So he personifies this double bind at the heart of the cultural crisis represented by the French Revolution. The double bind is we can leave all of this behind, you see. And that spirit sows a kind of the crisis of distinctions. There is no more, there's no distinctions anymore and unable to live with the crisis of distinctions, distinctions start to be made. Distinctions between those who are with us and those who aren't, and those who aren't go to the guillotine. Uh, and so in, a, in some ironic way, uh, this life is lived out. So that's one reference. And the third reference is to the Assyrian priest who are uh, showing pride in the grand sculptured bull that the faithful are worship, bowing down to worship. And of course, that bull represents the, the animal that will be sacrificed in the fertility cult ritual, which was the center of the Assyrian religious enterprise. 
So again, there is this. So in each case, in the case of Ham, in the case of Anacharsis' quotes, and in the case of the Assyrian priesthood, you have a, a reference to something latent in the, in the scene. That at some moment, uh, things will shift and the scene will become sacrificial and somebody will be expelled or sacrificed. So that was just an aside. Melville is saying, I've seen this happen before and I've seen these kind of handsome sailors before and then he seasons it with some of these very dubious associations. And then he goes on. Such a sinusure, at least in aspect and something too in nature, though with important variations made apparent as the story proceeds, was welcome-eyed Billy Budd. Sinusure is a object of admiration. By the way, I was recently reading this little book on compassion by um, Henry Nowen, Donald McNeil, and Douglas Morris. And and in it, they talk about um, uh, ceasing to be objects of interest to the world. And one line came to me when I read this line in in, in Melville. Uh, They say, living in the world as objects of interest alienates us from it. And uh, there is something in this pattern that is an echo of that as well, or or a prefiguration of that. So Billy Budd was a uh, was an object of admiration, as were the other handsome sailors in these uh, in this social scene. Or his name was Billy Budd, or Baby Budd, as more familiarly under circumstances here and after to be given. He at last came to be called, age 21, a foretopman of the British fleet toward the close of the last decade of the 18th century. So the story takes place in the last decade of the 18th century. The manuscript is completed in the last decade of the 19th century, and we're reading it on the threshold of the last decade of the 20th century. This is a nice little parallel. Now, here's the story of Billy. Billy has been impressed. Now, you have to understand, impressed... Impression is drafting. It's uh, taking you into military service against your will. And uh, that plays an important role in the story, obviously. So it's mentioned very offhandedly at the beginning, but we'll get it later on. Having been impressed on the narrow seas from a homeward-bound English merchantman into a 74 outward-bound, now, a 74 is a type of man-of-war ship, a, a military uh, ship, a fighting ship. So he's homeward-bound on a merchantman, which is intercepted by an outward-bound warship, and they impress Billy from the merchant ship to the warship. I'll explore that in a little bit. The name of the warship is the HMS Bilipotent. Now, some will have... Some will have uh, manus- manuscripts that will say the indomitable. I'm not familiar with the textual history of this thing, but it, it's a later version, which is the which is belipotent. And I think the choice of that term is fascinating. Belipotent means the power of war. See, the power of strife. 
Now, I think not so much the power of war in any physical sense, certainly not for what Melville is going to explore. But if you will allow me to use these Girardian terms for a moment, I'd suggest that it might be the power of a mimetic rivalry. That is to say, the power of war, not in a physical sense, but in a psychological sense. Here are two terms that occur in Melville's text. Man of war, that's the name of a fighting ship, and merchantman, that's the name of a commercial ship. Now, I realize I'm playing fast and loose, but it's okay, as long as you understand that. The power of war is a hint that the man of war has preeminence over the merchantman. And its preeminence is demonstrated because it has the power to stop the merchantman and take what sailors it wants. So it is the belipotent in the psychosocial sense of having the power to re-mythologize or to reactivate the primitive cult mechanism and to preempt uh, non-military enterprises. You see, commercial activity is dominated primarily by mimetic desire. Military activity is dominated primarily by mimetic rivalry. Mimetic rivalry is always preeminent over mimetic desire. They are at one with, they are part and parcel of each other. So that sometimes in warfare one doesn't know whether that is a legitimate, that those slogans we're using are really the reason we're out there doing that? Or are we really trying to make the world safe for democracy? Or are we trying to make the world safe for corporate exploitation. And that's because they are part and parcel of each other. Uh, the mimetic desire, I'm not talking about democracy and, and commercialization, I'm talking about mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry. But when the two are placed side by side, mimetic rivalry will always have the more potent uh, appeal. All of this is just a way of exploring this little word, the belipotent. And it interrupts the merchantman homeward bound and uh, takes the sailor out again to war. I want to go to the scene of Billy being impressed from the, from the merchantman to the man of war. And there's rich symbolism here uh, of making that transition. It's a fateful transition. The merchantman represents uh, a level of competition that is tolerable, actually provides the, so, the, the, is the engine of social and economic life, has a certain functional uh, role to play. So, a competition that's tolerated. One thinks of the uh, in the Iliad of the uh, of the funeral games, and that's all mimetic. That's a mimetic desire. We're in competition because uh, we're every you know we're trying to get the wealth or the prestige or the or the election or the whatever it is that is in scarce supply, and friendly competition within bounds is okay and everything's fine. And then there's this fateful transition from the merchantman to the man of war. 
And it's simply moving from mimetic desire to mimetic rivalry as the engine. And mimetic rivalry is a much more dangerous situation, much more given to a complete breakdown of, of uh, 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 social uh, uh, containment. So just to look at that for a moment as a metaphor, the Bolipotence lieutenant, burly and bluff, no wise disconcerted by Captain Graveling's omitting to proffer the customary hospitalities on an occasion so unwelcome to him, an omission simply caused by preoccupation of thought, unceremoniously invited himself into the cabin and also to a flask from the spirit locker, a receptacle which his experienced eye instantly discovered. You get the arrogance of a lieutenant from a man of war marching in to the, to the captain's cabin in a merchantman and just taking what he wants. There is a greater need on board the man of war ship for more than one sailor. But Billy is regarded as sufficient to meet the need once the lieutenant lays eyes on Billy. It says about the lieutenant that he, his experienced eye went right for the spirit locker in the, in the captain's cabin. And it's that same eye, you see, that went right for Billy. And then we have this reference to Billy as being, uh, as being likened to uh, treacle, the hornets to treacle, treacle being molasses. But the, the root word for treacle means a, it's an antidote to poison. It's a, it's a Greek term. It means the antidote to poison. And it may be that the, the need on board the, the Bolipotent is for someone who has these qualities that will, whether in the, uh, in the benign way that Billy was bringing peace to the merchantmanship, or in the more primitive cult way of being this, the pharmacos, that Billy will be the one that will somehow bring, uh, help establish order or uh, camaraderie uh, on, the, on the, the man of warship. For the cabin's proprietor, there was nothing left, left but to play the part of the enforced host with whatever grace and alacrity were practicable as he dismally watched the unembarrassed officer. You see, the military one comes in because he has behind him the preemptive power of mimetic rivalry. And all of the, all this captain has is mimetic desire. If you'll allow me to... A merchantman and the man of war. Now, just to give us a little uh, background on this, I'm not trying to be... I don't want to be scandalous myself. But uh, I just on Thursday had to be reading the New York Times and there was a column in there that uh, looked back over the last few years and noted that there has been an enormous military buildup at some cost to other things. And it listed several, and I've just picked out a few just to share with you. Educational block grants were cut by 63%. The federal money for subsistence housing was cut by 81%. Aid to families with dependent children was cut by 26%. Money for environmental protection was cut by 50%. Now, I'm not trying to get us into current politics. I'm trying to say that that is tolerated 
because it was all done in the name of national defense, which is to say that that slogan has preemptive power over all of the other concerns. It's simply the man of war is always uh, at liberty to take from the merchantman what he needs. Particularly, and this is the whole point of it, particularly in time of crisis. You see, again, it's the fear that something from the French Revolution will spread and that we'll find out later the British Navy is building its ships as fast as it can against the eventuality that what happened in France might spread. And uh, you have to have sailors for those ships. We'll come back to that. But then the captain of the merchantman says to the lieutenant who is taking Billy Bud with him, he says, beg pardon, but you don't understand, lieutenant. See here now, before I shipped that young fellow, my forecastle was a rat pit of quarrel. It was black times, I tell you, aboard the rights here, but Billy came, and it was like a Catholic priest striking peace in an Irish shindy. Not that he preached to them or said or did anything in particular, but a virtue went out of him. They took to him like hornets to treacle. All but the buffer of the gang, the big shaggy chap with the red, fire-red whiskers. He, in, he indeed, out of envy perhaps of the newcomer, and thinking such a, quote, sweet and pleasant fellow, end quote, as he mockingly designated him to others, could hardly have the spirit of the gamecock. Must needs bestir himself in trying to get up an ugly row with him. Now, let's analyze this text. There was quarrel, contention on this ship before Billy came, but it dissipated. Billy uh, had this effect. Something came out of him that kind of began to solve that, you see, and uh, dissolved it, and they came to Billy. Now, there's a little... There's a, something slightly ominous about the metaphor hornets to treacle. Treacle is a British slang for molasses. Uh, hornets are not... Uh, it's a little bit like that entourage following the, the uh, handsome... I mean, yeah, the handsome sailor. It's a little something uh, ominous about that. But everybody took to Billy. And the, he, his presence was working on them. All but the buffer... Now, the buffer is a, uh, is a British slang term for the chief bosun's mate. But its literal meaning from the Webster's Dictionary is the following. Any of various devices, apparatus, or pieces of material designed primarily to, to reduce shock due to contact. So notice how it works wonderfully in both meanings. Uh, the buffer of the gang didn't like Billy because Billy was was stealing his show you see Billy was undermining his game in the same way that Jesus was undermining what the Pharisees and Sadducees were up to this buffer is uh, is a primitive shaggy chap with fire red whiskers uh, indeed out of envy of Billy, but didn't like him. Because Billy represents something 
antithetical to the kind of community over which the buffer is presiding, namely a community of uh, a cult community that requires uh, a, a kind of pecking order violence to to establish order. And uh, Billy is creating another kind of community in which that's not those are not the premises. And so what you have here is essentially two community, two mechanisms for community creation. And I think it's helpful, uh, if you'll again allow me to, to uncapitalize and, and, and use it in its generic sense, I think it's helpful that Melville has alluded to Billy as being like a Catholic priest uh, at a, an Irish uh, ruckus, calm, having a calming effect. Because you might say that there are two, these two uh, community formation projects sponsored by Billy on one hand and the buffer on the other represent a, the, the Catholic small c community and the cultic community. And there are two priests. There's the Catholic small c priest, Billy, and the cultic priest, the buffer. And there's a controversy between them. How is community, how do we establish community? How do we come together? And, uh, the buffer knows, uh, is, he, he knows realpolitik. He knows that this is a tough world we live in. And, uh, you can't let your guard down. And somebody's got to establish law and order and stand tall and all of that. And notice what the, the, what the feature of it is. It says, the buffer, thinking such a sweet and pleasant fellow, as he mockingly designated him, could hardly have the spirit of the gamecock in him. You see, good will scandalize. Innocent goodness will scandalize. And it causes people who are dedicated to the cult operation to, to react against it. He didn't have the spirit of the gamecock in him. He seemed to be uniquely lacking in his mimetic uh, responses. You know, it's like the doctor using that little hammer on your knee to see if you've got the right... Uh, responses, he didn't seem to have them. He didn't seem to respond to this whole thing that's the whole life of the gang and of the buffer. It's everything for this, for this uh, cult. And here comes a guy that doesn't have any response to it. And so the buffer goes out of his way to scandalize Billy. That is to say, to get him to come back in it. In the same way that the Pharisees say to Jesus, well, do we pay the tax or don't we? Or do we stone her or don't we? Or do, are you going to contradict Moses? Are you going to, you know, all of that. Did you wash your hands before you ate? You know, whatever it is, try to trigger it back into the cult. And so the buffer goes around now thinking Billy doesn't, isn't sufficiently in touch with the mimetic features that are the underpinning of his, of his cult. And so he goes around trying to provoke it. Lest we think Billy is a Christ figure. There's, there is a, there's a Christic element in Billy.
but Billy is not a Christ figure for a number of reasons. One of which is that he is capable of being scandalized. And in both this little vignette we're talking about here and in the story later, he in fact is scandalized by the buffer, by the, the, the one that's the leader of the gang, into fighting back. And in this text it says, Billy gave the, the burly fool a terrible drubbing, finally. After which, the buffer, the chief bosun's mate, loved Billy. And everybody loved Billy. Now, this is interesting. Because in a sense, Billy resorts to the mechanism. And the mechanism is you resort to violence in order to get rid of violence. And the violence you resort to is sufficiently triumphant to be recognized as official violence. And it settles the matter. The question was, for the buffer, the whole, all of that mimetic stuff, you know, who's on top and all the rest of it and where do you fit into this? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pecking order system. And the irony, I mean, the sort of funny thing about this is that the buffer doesn't really, it's not so much that he wants to be on top. He just doesn't want anybody to be outside the system. He doesn't mind submitting to Billy in the sense of recognizing him now as being the, the more powerful of the two. He doesn't mind submitting. He just doesn't want somebody to be, to be walking around on that ship outside the system. Then the uh, captain goes on. It's a happy family here. But now, Lieutenant, if that young fellow goes, I know how it will be aboard the rights. You are going to take away my peacemaker. And he has to choke back a tear. Now, before I go on, he's the peacemaker. I want to refer to Patroclus. Patroclus uh, was a, a peacemaker in that he healed uh, Eurypylus on the field and he pulled the spear out of the uh, arrowhead out of Eurypylus's thigh. And then later he becomes the peacemaker in a larger sense in that he dies and brings the whole community together again because he's killed by Hector and it reunites the community. In between healing Eurypylus and dying and healing the whole culture, Patroclus is scandalized. When he puts on Achilles' armor, he goes out, he only goes out there to stand in Achilles' armor and scare off the, the, the Trojans so that the Argives can have a little respite. But the armor, you see, is, is itself scandalous. It's contagious. It's the vector of the disease. And pretty soon he finds himself out there slaughtering the Trojans just like everybody else. And so Hector comes along and kills him. So uh, there's a Patroclus-like quality to Billy. He's a healer. He heals aboard the merchantman by simply being that kind of a fellow. But there's another kind of healing it's a, it's a more advanced stage of the disease when he gets on board the man of war. Anyway, he says, you're taking away my peacemaker. Well, said the lieutenant, who had listened with amused interest to all this and now was waxing merry with his tipple. Well, blessed be the peacemakers, especially the fighting peacemaker. And there's, there's that whole question of Christendom again. See, that's the question of Christendom, that alloy, um, which involves the crisis of 
Christendom. Peacemakers, blessed be the peacemakers, especially the fighting peacemakers. And there you have the double bind. And after seeing this man into the cutter and then following him down, the lieutenant pushed off from the rights of man. This is the first time we learn from the rights of man. That was the merchant ship's name, though by her master and crew abbreviated in sailor fashion into the rights. So the name of the merchant ship is the rights of man. And the lieutenant pushed off from the rights of man. The hard-headed Dundee owner was a staunch admirer of Thomas Paine, whose book, in rejoinder to Burke's arraignment of the French Revolution, had then been published for some time and had gone everywhere. In christening his vessel after the title of Paine's volume, the man of Dundee was something like his contemporary shipowner, Stephen Girard of Philadelphia. <laughs> whose sympathies alike with his native land and its liberal philosophers he evinced by naming his ships after Voltaire, Diderot, and so forth. All of which is to say, underscore once again, that this is being played out very much under the shadow of the French Revolution and the crisis that that has precipitated in the British mind. So the name of the ship is the rights of man. And now they're parting with Billy now on the man of war. But now, when the boat swept under the merchantman's stern, and officer and oarsman were noting, some bitterly and others with a grin, the name emblazoned there, just then it was that the new recruit jumped up from the bow where the coxswain had directed him to sit, and waving hat to his silent shipmate, sorrowfully looking over at him from the taffrail, bade the lads the genial goodbye then making a salutation as to the ship herself. And goodbye to you too, old rights of man. Down, sir, roared the lieutenant. See, a breach of naval etiquette. Goodbye to you, old rights of man. Now, Melville has not uh, made a connection here, and I... I only feel it in the Melvillian spirit uh, to make it. And that is that by moving from the merchantmanship entitled The Rights of Man to the man of war ship entitled Bilipitan, Billy Budd is moving from the rights of man to the R-I-T-E-S of man. And now we're going to see those two, in a sense, being played out. The French Revolution played out both of those. And, and Melville is meditating on the effects of the French Revolution, on how the French Revolution is, uh, is uh, seeping into the British Navy in its very attempt to repel the consequences of the French Revolution. It is, it is uh, seeding the French Revolution and its consequences in itself, in the same way that in our attempt to repel the, the consequences of a covert and secret society run by the communist dictators. We launched covert and secret operations, you see, and sanctified them, made them legitimate aspects of our national policy. It's a minor parallel, but it's a parallel, you see. In other words, it's coming in our very reaction to it. 
we do, we replicate it. So goodbye to the R-I-G-H-T-S of man and hello to the R-I-T-E-S. In the second little section, it says, a novice in the complexities of factitious life was Billy, and therefore he had to undergo abrupt the abrupt transition from his former and simpler sphere to the ampler and more knowing world of a great warship. When you first glance at that first line, you almost instinctively read factious, which means divisive. But the word is factitious, which means disingenuous. It means artificial. So he was a novice to these uh, to this artificial, disingenuous environment of the warship where there are subterranean plots all the while. He was, quote, one to whom not yet has been proffered the questionable apple of knowledge. He was illiterate. He could not read, but he could sing. And like the illiterate Nightingale, was sometimes composer of his own song. So this is a little bit like Queequeg in, in Moby Dick. Remember, Queequeg sits before those those uh, uh, tombs with the letters written on them. The, the, the letters killeth of the spirit gives life, Paul says. And he was the only one that wasn't taken in by him because he couldn't read, and, and Billy's the same way. But I think a very important insight into Billy is the following. Of self-consciousness, he seemed to have little or none or about as much as we may reasonably impute to a dog of St. Bernard's breed. That is to say, he has just enough self-consciousness to perform an act of selfless rescue. So he has just enough self-consciousness to do what a St. Bernard does. And maybe that's all any of us need. (laughs)